Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody. Chapter 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, and to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Moira Fogarty. Roughing It in the Bush by Susanna Moody. Chapter 1. A Visit to Gross Isle. Alas, that man's stern spirit e'er should mar a scene so pure, so exquisite as this. The dreadful cholera was depopulating Quebec and Montreal when our ship cast anchor off Gross Isle on the 30th of August, 1832, and we were boarded a few minutes after by the health officers. One of these gentlemen, a little shriveled-up Frenchman, from his solemn aspect and attenuated figure, would have made no bad representative of him who sat upon the pale horse. He was the only grave Frenchman I had ever seen, and I naturally enough regarded him as a phenomenon. His companion, a fine-looking, fair-haired Scotchman, though a little consequential in his manners, looked like one who, in his own person, could combat and vanquish all the evils which flesh is heir to. Such was the contrast between these doctors, that they would have formed very good emblems, one of vigorous health, the other of hopeless decay. Our captain, a rude, blunt, north-country sailor, possessing certainly not more politeness than might be expected in a bear, received his sprucely-dressed visitors on the deck, and, with very little courtesy, abruptly bade them follow him down into the cabin. The officials were no sooner seated then, glancing hastily round the place, they commenced the following dialogue. "'From what port, Captain?' Now, the Captain had a peculiar language of his own, from which he commonly expunged all the connecting links. Small words, such as and and the, he contrived to dispense with altogether. "'Scotland. Sail from port leith bound for Quebec, Montreal. General cargo, seventy-two steerage, four cabin passengers, brig, Anne, one hundred and ninety-two tons burden, crew, eight hands. Here he produced his credentials, and handed them to the strangers. The Scotchman just glanced over the documents, and laid them on the table. Had you a good passage out? Tedious, baffling winds, heavy fogs, detained three weeks on banks, foul weather-making gulf, short of water, uh, people out of provisions, steerage passengers starving. "'Any case of sickness or death on board?' "'All sound as crickets.' "'Any births?' lisped the little Frenchman. The captain screwed up his mouth, and, after a moment's reflection, he replied, "'Births? Why, yes. Now I think on it, gentlemen, we had one female on board, who produced three at a birth.' Oh, "'That's uncommon,' said the Scotch doctor, with an air of lively curiosity. "'Are the children alive and well? I should like much to see them.' He started up, and knocked his head, for he was very tall, against the ceiling. "'Oh, confound your low cribs! I've nearly dashed out my brains!' "'A hard task that,' looked the captain to me. He did not speak, but I knew by his sarcastic grin what was uppermost in his thoughts. "'The young ones all males, fine, thriving fellows. Step upon deck, Sam Fraser,' turning to his steward. "'Bring them down for doctors to see.' Sam vanished, with a knowing wink to his superior, and quickly returned, bearing in his arms three fat, chuckle-headed bull-terriers, the sagacious mother following close at his heels, and looked ready to give and take offence on the slightest provocation. 
"'Here, gentlemen, are the babies,' said Fraser, depositing his burden on the floor. "'They do credit to the nursing of the brindled slut.' The old tar laughed, chuckled, and rubbed his hands in an ecstasy of delight at the indignation and disappointment visible in the countenance of the Scotch Esculapius, who, angry as he was, wisely held his tongue. Not so the Frenchman. His rage scarcely knew bounds. He danced in a state of most ludicrous excitement. He shook his fist at our rough captain, and screamed at the top of his voice, "'Sacré, you bête! You think us dog when you try to pass your puppies on us for babies?' Hoot, man, don't be angry,' said the Scotchman, stifling a laugh. "'You see, tis only a joke.' "'Joke! Me no understand such joke! Bête!' returned the angry Frenchman, bestowing a savage kick on one of the unoffending pups which was frisking about his feet. The pup yelped. The slut barked and leapt furiously at the offender, and was only kept from biting him by Sam, who could scarcely hold her back for laughing. The captain was uproarious. The offended Frenchman, alone, maintained a severe and dignified aspect. The dogs were at length dismissed, and peace restored. After some further questioning from the officials, a Bible was required for the captain to take an oath. Mine was mislaid, and there was none at hand. "'Oh, confound it!' muttered the old sailor, tossing over the papers in his desk. "'That scoundrel Sam always stows my traps out of the way!' Then, taking up from the table a book which I had been reading, which happened to be Voltaire's History of Charles the Twelfth, he presented it, with as grave an air as he could assume, to the Frenchman. Taking for granted that it was the volume required, the little doctor was too polite to open the book, the captain was duly sworn, and the party returned to the deck. Here a new difficulty occurred, which nearly ended in a serious quarrel. The gentleman requested the old sailor to give them a few feet of old planking, to repair some damage which their boat had sustained the day before. This the captain could not do. They seemed to think his refusal intentional, and took it as a personal affront. In no very gentle tones they ordered him instantly to prepare his boats, and put his passengers on shore. Ah, "'Stiff breeze, short sea,' returned the bluff old seaman. "'Great risk in making land. Boats heavily laden with women and children will be swamped. Not a soul goes on shore this night.' "'If you refuse to comply with our orders, we will report you to the authorities. I know my duty. You stick to yours. When the wind falls off, I'll see to it.' Not a life shall be risked to please you or your authorities. He turned upon his heel, and the medical men left the vessel in great disdain. We had every reason to be thankful for the firmness displayed by our rough commander. That same evening we saw eleven persons drowned from another vessel close beside us while attempting to make the shore. By daybreak all was hurry and confusion on board the Anne. I watched boat after boat depart for the island, full of people and goods, and envied them the glorious privilege of once more standing firmly on the earth, after two long months of rocking and rolling at sea. How ardently we anticipate pleasure, which often ends in positive pain! Such was my case when at last indulged in the gratification so eagerly desired. As cabin passengers we were not included in the general order of purification, but were only obliged to send our servant, with the clothes and bedding we had used during the voyage, on shore to be washed. The ship was soon emptied of all her live cargo. My husband went off with the boats, to reconnoitre the island, and I was left alone with my baby in the otherwise empty vessel. 
Even Oscar, the captain's Scotch terrier, who had formed a devoted attachment to me during the voyage, forgot his allegiance, became possessed of the land mania, and was away with the rest. With the most intense desire to go on shore, I was doomed to look and long and envy every boatful of emigrants that glided past. Nor was this all. The ship was out of provisions, and I was condemned to undergo a rigid fast until the return of the boat, when the captain had promised a supply of fresh butter and bread. The vessel had been nine weeks at sea. The poor steerage passengers for the two last weeks had been out of food, and the captain had been obliged to feed them from the ship's stores. The promised bread was to be attained from a small steamboat, which plied daily between Quebec and the island, transporting convalescent emigrants and their goods in her upward trip, and provisions for the sick on her return. How I reckoned on once more tasting bread and butter! The very thought of the treat in store served to sharpen my appetite, and render the long fast more irksome. I could now fully realize all Mrs. Bowditch's longings for English bread and butter, after her three years' travel through the burning African deserts with her talented husband. "'When we arrived at the hotel at Plymouth,' said she, "'and were asked what refreshment we chose, "'tea and homemade bread and butter was my instant reply. "'Brown bread, if you please, and plenty of it. "'I never enjoyed any luxury like it. "'I was positively ashamed of asking the waiter to refill the plate. "'After the execrable messes and the hardship biscuit, "'imagine the luxury of a good slice of English bread and butter.' At home I laughed heartily at the lively energy with which that charming woman of genius related this little incident in her eventful history, but off Gross Isle I realized it all. As the sun rose above the horizon, all these matter-of-fact circumstances were gradually forgotten, and merged in the surpassing grandeur of the scene that rose majestically before me. The previous day had been dark and stormy, and a heavy fog had concealed the mountain chain, which forms the stupendous background to this sublime view, entirely from our sight. As the clouds rolled away from their grey, bald brows, and cast into denser shadow the vast forest belt that girdled them round, they loomed out like mighty giants, titans of the earth, in all their rugged and awful beauty. A thrill of wonder and delight pervaded my mind. The spectacle floated dimly on my sight. My eyes were blinded with tears, blinded with the excess of beauty. I turned to the right and to the left. I looked up and down the glorious river. Never had I beheld so many striking objects blended into one mighty whole. Nature had lavished all her noblest features in producing that enchanting scene. The rocky isle in front, with its neat farmhouses at the eastern point, and its high bluff at the western extremity, crowned with the telegraph, the middle space occupied by tents and sheds for the cholera patients, and its wooded shores dotted over with motley groups, added greatly to the picturesque effect of the land scene. Then the broad, glittering river, covered with boats darting to and fro, conveying passengers from twenty-five vessels of various size and tonnage, which rode at anchor with their flags flying from the masthead, gave an air of life and interest to the whole. Turning to the south side of the St. Lawrence, I was not less struck with its low fertile shores, white houses, and neat churches, whose slender spires and bright tin roofs shone like silver as they caught the first rays of the sun. 
as far as the eye could reach, a line of white buildings extended along the bank, their background formed by the purple hue of the dense, interminable forest. It was a scene unlike any I had ever beheld, and to which Britain contains no parallel. Mackenzie, an old Scotch dragoon, who was one of our passengers when he rose in the morning and saw the parish of St. Thomas for the first time, exclaimed, "'Weel, it beats ah! Can they white clouts be ah houses? They look like clays hung out to dray!' There was some truth in this odd comparison, and for some minutes I could scarcely convince myself that the white patches, scattered so thickly over the opposite shore, could be the dwellings of a busy, lively population. "'What sublime views of the north side of the river those habitants of St. Thomas must enjoy,' thought I. Perhaps familiarity with the scene has rendered them indifferent to its astonishing beauty. Eastward, the view down the St. Lawrence towards the gulf is the finest of all, scarcely surpassed by anything in the world. Your eye follows the long range of lofty mountains, until their blue summits are blended and lost in the blue of the sky. Some of these, partially cleared round the base, are sprinkled over with neat cottages, and the green slopes that spread around them are covered with flocks and herds. The surface of the splendid river is diversified with islands of every size and shape, some in wood, others partially cleared, and adorned with orchards and white farmhouses. As the early sun streamed upon the most prominent of these, leaving the others in deep shade, the effect was strangely novel and imposing. In more remote regions, where the forest has never yet echoed the woodman's axe, or received the impress of civilization, the first approach to the shore inspires a melancholy awe, which becomes painful in its intensity. Land of vast hills and mighty streams, the lofty sun that o'er thee beams, on fairer clime sheds not his ray, when basking in the noon of day. Thy waters dance in silver light, and o'er them frowning, dark as night, thy shadowy forests, soaring high, stretch forth beyond the aching eye, and blend in distance with the sky. And silence, awful silence, broods profoundly o'er these solitudes. Naught but the lapsing of the floods breaks the deep stillness of the woods. A sense of desolation reigns o'er these unpeopled forest plains, where sounds of life ne'er wake a tone of cheerful praise round nature's throne. Man finds himself with God alone. My daydreams were dispelled by the return of the boat, which brought my husband and the captain from the island. No bread, said the latter, shaking his head. You must be content to starve a little longer. Provision ship not in till four o'clock. My husband smiled at the look of blank disappointment with which I received these unwelcome tidings. Never mind, I have news which will comfort you. The officer who commands the station sent a note to me by an orderly, inviting us to spend the afternoon with him. He promises to show us everything worthy of notice on the island. Captain claims acquaintance with me, but I have not the least recollection of him. Would you like to go? Oh, by all means. I long to see the lovely island. It looks a perfect paradise at this distance. The rough sailor captain screwed his mouth on one side, and gave me one of his comical looks, but he said nothing until he assisted in placing me and the baby in the boat. "'Don't be too sanguine, Mrs. Moody. Many things look well at a distance, which are bad enough when near.' 
I scarcely regarded the old sailor's warning, so eager was I to go on shore, to put my foot upon the soil of the new world for the first time. I was in no humour to listen to any depreciation of what seemed so beautiful. It was four o'clock when we landed on the rocks, which the rays of an intensely scorching sun had rendered so hot that I could scarcely place my foot upon them. How the people without shoes bore it I cannot imagine. Never shall I forget the extraordinary spectacle that met our sight the moment we passed the low range of bushes which formed a screen in front of the river. A crowd of many hundred Irish emigrants had been landed during the present and former day, and all this motley crew, men, women, and children, who were not confined by sickness to the sheds, which greatly resembled cattle pens, were employed in washing clothes or spreading them out on the rocks and bushes to dry. The men and boys were in the water, while the women, with their scanty garments tucked above their knees, were trampling their bedding in tubs or in holes in the rocks, which the retiring tide had left half full of water. Those who did not possess washing-tubs, pails, or iron-pots, or could not obtain access to a hole in the rocks, were running to and fro, screaming and scolding in no measured terms. The confusion of Babel was among them. All talkers and no hearers, each shouting and yelling in his or her uncouth dialect, and all accompanying their vociferations with violent and extraordinary gestures, quite incomprehensible to the uninitiated. We were literally stunned by the strife of tongues. I shrank, with feelings almost akin to fear, from the hard-featured sunburnt harpies, as they elbowed rudely past me. I had heard and read much of savages, and have since seen, during my long residence in the bush, somewhat of uncivilized life. But the Indian is one of nature's gentlemen. He never says or does a rude or vulgar thing. The vicious, uneducated barbarians who form the surplus of over-populous European countries are far behind the wild man in delicacy of feeling or natural courtesy. The people who covered the island appeared perfectly destitute of shame, or even of a sense of common decency. Many were almost naked, still more but partially clothed. We turned in disgust from the revolting scene, but were unable to leave the spot until the captain had satisfied a noisy group of his own people who were demanding a supply of stores. And here I must observe that our passengers, who were chiefly honest Scotch labourers and mechanics from the vicinity of Edinburgh, and who, while on board ship, had conducted themselves with the greatest propriety, and appeared the most quiet, orderly set of people in the world, no sooner set foot upon the island than they became infected by the same spirit of insubordination and misrule, and were just as insolent and noisy as the rest. While our captain was vainly endeavouring to satisfy the unreasonable demands of his rebellious people, Moody had discovered a woodland path that led to the back of the island. Sheltered by some hazel bushes from the intense heat of the sun, we sat down by the cool, gushing river, out of sight, but alas, not out of hearing of the noisy, riotous crowd. Could we have shut out the profane sounds which came to us on every breeze, how deeply should we have enjoyed an hour amid the tranquil beauties of that retired and lovely spot! The rocky banks of the island were adorned with beautiful evergreens, which sprang up spontaneously in every nook and crevice. I remarked many of our favourite garden shrubs among these wildings of nature, the filigree with its narrow, dark, glossy green leaves, 
the privet, with its modest white blossoms and purple berries, the lignum vitae, with its strong resinous odour, the burnet rose, and a great variety of elegant unknowns. Here the shores of the island and mainland, receding from each other, formed a small cove overhung with lofty trees, clothed from the base to the summit with wild vines that hung in graceful festoons from the topmost branches to the water's edge. The dark shadows of the mountains, thrown upon the water as they towered to the height of some thousand feet above us, gave to the surface of the river an ebon hue. The sunbeams, dancing through the thick, quivering foliage, fell in stars of gold, or long lines of dazzling brightness, upon the deep black waters, producing the most novel and beautiful effects. It was a scene over which the spirit of peace might brood in silent adoration. But how spoiled by the discordant yells of the filthy beings who were sullying the purity of the air and water with contaminating sights and sounds! We were now joined by the sergeant, who very kindly brought us his capful of ripe plums and hazelnuts, the growth of the island, a joyful present, but marred by a note from Captain, who had found that he had been mistaken in his supposed knowledge of us, and politely apologized for not being allowed by the health officers to receive any emigrant beyond the bounds appointed for the performance of quarantine. I was deeply disappointed, but my husband laughingly told me that I had seen enough of the island, and turning to the good-natured soldier remarked that it could be no easy task to keep such wild savages in order. "'Oh, you may well say that, sir, but our night scenes far exceed those of the day. You would think they were incarnate devils.' singing, drinking, dancing, shouting, and cutting antics that would surprise the leader of a circus. They have no shame, are under no restraint. Nobody knows them here, and they think they can speak and act as they please. And they are such thieves that they rob one another of the little they possess. The healthy actually run the risk of taking the cholera by robbing the sick. If you have not hired one or two stout, honest fellows from among your fellow-passengers to guard your clothes while they are drying— you will never see half of them again. They are a sad set, sir, a sad set. We could perhaps manage the men, but the women, sir, the women! Oh, sir! Anxious as we were to return to the ship, we were obliged to remain until sundown in our retired nook. We were hungry, tired, and out of spirits. The mosquitoes swarmed in myriads around us, tormenting the poor baby who— not at all pleased with her first visit to the new world, filled the air with cries, when the captain came to tell us that the boat was ready. It was a welcome sound. Forcing our way once more through the still squabbling crowd, we gained the landing-place. Here we encountered a boat just landing a fresh cargo of lively savages from the Emerald Isle. One fellow, of gigantic proportions, whose long tattered greatcoat just reached below the middle of his bare red legs, and, like charity, hid the defects of his other garments, or perhaps concealed his want of them, leapt upon the rocks, and flourishing aloft his shillelagh, bounded and capered like a wild goat from his native mountains. "'Hurrah, my boys!' he cried. "'Sure we'll all be gentlemen!' "'Pull away, my lads,' said the captain. Then, turning to me, "'Well, Mrs. Moody, I hope that you have had enough of Gross Isle. But could you have witnessed the scenes that I did this morning?' Here he was interrupted by the wife of the old Scotch dragoon, Mackenzie, running down to the boat and laying her hand familiarly upon his shoulder. "'Captain, dinna forget!' "'Forget what?' 
she whispered something confidentially in his ear. "'Oh, ho, the brandy!' he responded aloud. "'I should have thought, Mrs. Mackenzie, that you had had enough of that same on yon island.' "'Ay, sick a place for decent folk,' returned the drunken body, shaking her head. "'One needs a drop of comfort, Captain, to keep up one's heart of a. The captain set up one of his boisterous laughs as he pushed the boat from the shore. "'Hullo, Sam Fraser! Steer in, we have forgotten the stores!' "'I hope not, Captain,' said I. "'I have been starving since daybreak.' "'Oh, the bread, the butter, the beef, the onions, and potatoes are here, sir,' said honest Sam, particularizing each article. "'All right. Pull for the ship. Mrs. Moody, we will have a glorious supper, and mind you don't dream of Gross Isle.' In a few minutes we were again on board. Thus ended my first day's experience of the land of all our hopes. "'Oh, can you leave your native land?' A Canadian Song O oh, can you leave your native land, an exile's bride-to-be, Your mother's home and cheerful hearth, to tempt the main with me, Across the wide and stormy sea, to trace our foaming track, And know the wave that heaves us on will never bear us back. And can you in Canadian woods with me the harvest bind, Nor feel one lingering sad regret for all you leave behind? Can those dear hands, unused to toil, the woodman's wants supply, nor shrink beneath the chilly blast when wintry storms are nigh? Amid the shades of forests dark, our loved isle will appear, an Eden whose delicious bloom will make the wild more drear. And you in solitude will weep, o'er scenes beloved in vain, and pine away your life to view once more your native plain. Then pause, dear girl, ere those fond lips your wanderer's fate decide. My spirit spurns the selfish wish, you must not be my bride. But, oh, that smile, those tearful eyes, my firmer purpose move. Our hearts are one, and we will dare all perils thus to love. This song has been set to a beautiful plaintive air by my husband. End of chapter 1 Recorded in Toronto, Ontario, by Moira Fogarty July 2008